you have your Bibles, I invite you to go ahead and grab them and turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, if you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's on page 792. Those black Bibles beside you. As been said earlier, if you're a guest with us or you're not a Christian and you don't have a Bible that you can read at home, please take that as a gift from our church. Okay, so it's rare to find things in life that are both satisfying and sufficient. It's easy to find the thing that's satisfying but not enough, and it's easy to find the thing that's not enough but not satisfying. For example, bluebell ice cream, especially cookie two-step and the peach ice cream, is extremely satisfying. Uh, When I eat it, I soar to worlds unknown. I taste what seems to me to be the third heaven. It is extremely satisfying. But unfortunately, it is not sufficient. If you don't believe me, just eat Bluebell every day for all three meals for the next month. Your body will cancel you so fast. Though it's satisfying, it's not sufficient. Compare that to vegetables. Uh, Vegetables, they're enough. They're sufficient. But no one walks away from a big old pile of broccoli with gleaming satisfaction. It's enough, but it's not satisfying. It's rare to find the things in life that are both satisfying and sufficient. I mean, we see this in our world almost every day. People are on the hunt for the satisfying and the sufficient thing. They want the right job. They want the right spouse. They want the right school for their kids, the right hobbies, the right neighborhoods, because they believe if they get these things, they'll find rest and happiness forever. But the problem is dissatisfaction still rules the day. People keep searching, and they can't find what they're looking for. The world is filled with people who are always seeking but never arriving. They're always looking, but they're never seeing. They're always listening, but never hearing. They're always learning and never understanding. The truth is you can't find sufficiency and satisfaction in an ever-changing world. And the world was never meant to be enough for us, but to point us to the one who is enough for us, who not only gives us what we need, but is himself who we need. And today, brothers and sisters, we are going to see that Jesus is that one. We're going to see that Jesus alone is satisfying and sufficient. So if you have your Bible, I want you to look there with me now. We're going to read all of uh, verses 1 through 21 together here, and then we'll go down, go back and we'll break it down. So this is what Mark wrote through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21, he says this, In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, 
How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he set these. Uh, he said, or said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmantha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Brothers and sisters, Mark 8 is telling us two things. Mark 8, 1 through 21 is telling us two things, that Jesus alone satisfies. Number two, Jesus alone is sufficient. Jesus alone satisfies, that's verses 1 through 10. Jesus alone is sufficient, that's verses 11 through 21. Let's look at our first point together, Jesus alone satisfies. We see this in verses 1 through 10. Mark starts by telling us that Jesus is yet again surrounded by another crowd. Though he doesn't explicitly say it, we believe that Jesus is most likely still in Gentile territory. That's why he says, in those days. I think he's alluding to the fact that they're still at the Decapolis there, the Gentile region. And it appears that they were out in the wilderness and far from the towns and marketplaces because Mark tells us the fact that yet again, they're in a similar situation. They're surrounded by thousands of people and they have nothing to eat very similar situation to what we read about in Mark chapter 6 of the feeding of 5,000. There the, Jesus is teaching, the people have followed him, and they're surrounded, Jesus, and yet they don't have anything to eat. And there the disciples say, hey, you need to dismiss them, Jesus, because they need to go get something to eat. And Jesus says, you go give them something to eat. And they're shocked, and he does this to show how utterly insufficient they are for the task. But this time, it's not the disciples coming to Jesus, it's Jesus coming to the disciples. 
Look at verse 2. Look what he says. He looks at them, he looks out, and he says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them came from far away. Jesus looks at them and he has compassion on them. Now, when you hear the word compassion, what do you think? I think a lot of us would have different things in our minds, but I think most of us probably think compassion is sympathy. You know, where we hear of somebody going through a hard time and you, and you say, I, I just feel bad for them. I wish there's something that I could do. And you may uh, make a temp, an attempt or two to try to help the person who's going through the hard time, and yet as the days and weeks go along, you kind of move on with your life. Well, compassion here is not sympathy. Compassion is something greater than that. See, it's not some mere feeling that Jesus felt. He doesn't look up and was like, man, I didn't realize I preached that long. I feel bad. I need now, I need now to, to go buy them dinner. That's not what's happening here. Jesus is grieved for these people. He is moved in his inward parts for these people. He looks at them and is so concerned for their need that he is not going to let them go. He is going to meet their need. Now, Jesus was no mere feeler. He didn't just feel for the suffering. He did stuff for the suffering. He provided all that they needed because he had compassion upon them. It's very interesting through Mark. Multiple times, Mark tells us that Jesus has compassion, and it's not on the people you'd anticipate. It's not on his like, best friends or his family are those who can get in places in the world. Go back to Mark chapter 1. Jesus is approached by the leper, and we remember how, uh, how much of an outcast the leper was in that society. They would have to run around covering their mouth, yelling, unclean, unclean. And he breaks all the social norms, and he runs right up to Jesus. What does it say? Jesus had compassion on him. The man who had been avoided his whole life, who was a complete social outcast, Jesus says, I have compassion on this man. Go on to, to Mark chapter 6, the large, large crowd gathers around Jesus and he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were a sheep without a shepherd. Those who the leaders of Israel were supposed to watch over and care for had been neglected, but not with Jesus. He had compassion on them. Here with these Gentiles, the ones that the Jews would have avoided altogether, not Jesus. He has compassion on them. Mark 9, there's going to be a father who brings his son to Jesus. The son is filled with a demon. And he says, Jesus, have compassion on me, and Jesus does. Jesus is no emotionally cold Savior. He is not apathetic or indignant toward the suffering. No, he feels for them. And what he feels for the suffering causes him to act on their behalf. Brothers and sisters, here we begin to sense and feel the comfort and the complexity of Scripture. Here's what I mean. The Bible is clear. Jesus has all authority on heaven and earth. Jesus is guiding and governing, governing all of human history in this moment. There has never been something that happened in your life that Jesus looked up and was surprised. He is sovereign over every single area of your life. There's great comfort in that. But with that comfort comes complexity. 
That means that all the afflictions that you have experienced, all the suffering you will experience and have gone through in your life, he allowed those things to take place. I mean, he's the one here teaching to these people. He knows they're not going to have food. They're in the midst of a a desert, of a, a desolate place, and yet Jesus brings them out there. He's sovereign over all things. And I don't fully understand how this all works out. I don't understand why Jesus allows certain saints to suffer the way that they do. I know theologically and biblically why. He does it all for his glory and our good. That's absolutely true. But I don't understand why he allows certain saints to suffer in greater ways than others. That's going to be a mystery in this life until Jesus returns. But here's what I can tell you with great confidence. That he feels for you in your suffering. Jesus is compassionate towards the suffering. I am convinced that Jesus is in heaven and he's watching his people suffer indignantly. I think he's angry at the suffering going on in the world. And I'm convinced that he is the only one who sees our suffering accurately and rightly. None of us see our suffering clearly. Jesus does. And Jesus has done something about it, and Jesus will do something about it. So I can't give you all the answers in the days ahead about what you're going to go through and what you're going to experience, but I can rest assured that our Jesus is not distant from you. He feels for you. That's who he is. He has compassion on them because that is who our Savior is. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus is compassionate towards sinners like us, how much more should we be compassionate towards one another? How much should we seek to imitate Jesus and seek to match him in his own compassion? We should labor and pray that we would all see each other suffering rightly that we would all seek to to help each other in our time of need so that we can be like Jesus towards one another. Let's, Let's make it our aim not to be mere acquaintances who only swim in the shallow waters of small talk. Let's make it our aim that we aren't those people who hear of suffering and we're like, I feel bad, but I I hope I'm not asked to do anything about it. No, let's be that family who's indignant toward each other's suffering and seeks to do something about it. Because that's who our Jesus is. And that's who he has called us to be. The Apostle John, using the same word of compassion in 1 John three seventeen through 18, says this, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, meaning doesn't have compassion on him, How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Jesus is compassionate towards his people, and so should we be towards one another. Did you notice why the people are hungry? Is it because they forgot to bring their little Lunchables with them? They forgot to bring their Uncrustables, which are a delicious little snack. They just had been, they just neglected, they just forgot time and those things. No, the reason why they were hungry and they had gone without food is because they were willing to leave those things behind for Jesus. They were willing to walk away from worldly comfort so they could spend time with Jesus. And I don't think they came to Jesus looking for a handout. 
I don't think they came to Jesus thinking he's going to feed us physically. No, I think their primary concern was they were being fed spiritually. They found something so good and glorious in Jesus that they were happy to miss a meal. They found him altogether satisfying. That they needed nothing else. They would agree with Moses in Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, where he says, Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the Lord. They were living on the words of Jesus. They're living examples of Matthew 6. You remember that when Jesus says, don't be anxious about your life, by what you wear, by what you drink, or what you eat, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and God's going to take care of the rest. Well, they were seeking first Jesus and his kingdom, and Jesus was being faithful to his promise. He was going to take care of the rest. He was going to give them all that they needed. Oh, to be a people who desire the words of Christ more than any worldly good. To be a people who are happy to miss a meal if it means we get more time with Jesus. To be a people who are happy to wake up an hour earlier or stay up an hour later if it means we get more time with Jesus. Who see in Jesus that he is the most satisfying Savior. There is none like him. The crowds fell in love with Jesus and they were not concerned about their needs. But Jesus' love for the crowd caused him to be concerned about their needs. That's how the Christian life works. We don't worry about our lives. We just pursue Jesus, and Jesus will take care of our lives. It's kind of hard to believe, isn't it, at times? Like if, if I just keep pursuing Jesus, he's going to take care of me? Yes, that's kind of how the thing works. You get after following Jesus, and he'll get after taking care of your life. It might mean that you have to recalibrate your expectations, It might mean that you have been discipled by the world in terms of what you think you need. But there's good news. Jesus is happy to help you with your expectations. You get after following Jesus. You get after knowing his word and making him known, and I promise you, he will take care of you. You just sit at the feet of Jesus. You enjoy Jesus. You pursue Jesus, and you help people do the same, and he's going to take care of you because he promised he would. That's who he is. That's who our Savior is. He calls us to hard things, but he gives us what we need to get through those hard things. There's a story I don't share often, but before we went to Washington, D.C., we were in North Dallas, and I just, I was so convinced, Megan and I both were so convinced that we needed to leave our circumstance and kind of reset and go to D.C. It didn't make sense to anybody around us. It didn't make any financial sense. And I was kind of stressed out of my mind. Outwardly, you wouldn't see it, but inwardly, I was like struggling. Jesus, I know this is what you want us to do. I sense this is what you want us to do. I just don't know how it's going to work. And it was amazing that time and time again, people would call and reach out and say, God's laid you on my heart. I want to help you. I never called anybody. I never told anybody. But God, through his people, met our need. And it was better than we could have imagined. Because all that Jesus does is good, because he is good. And I hesitate to share some of the stories, because I don't know what your story is going to look like. I don't want you to expect that your story is going to be like mine, but I can tell you this, that Jesus is really good. So you just get after following him, and he'll take care of you. That's who he is. Trust him, follow him, and watch him provide in your life, because that's what he does. Jesus goes on here, and he asks the disciples to join in in terms of caring for the people. How do they respond? How are you going to do this, Jesus? 
How are you going to feed all these people with bread here in this desolate place? How they don't remember the feeding of the 5,000 is beyond me. And here's what's interesting. Where Jesus is, it is never a desolate place. There is no desert dry enough to keep Jesus from doing what he's going to do. The driest brook becomes a rushing river with Jesus. He always is able to meet the needs of his people. Jesus will address the disciples' issue later, but he begins to ask, how many loaves do we have? There's one loaf, and he makes the people sit down, and there's 4,000. And we see this pattern again that Ben highlighted for us a few weeks ago. Jesus takes, he blesses, he breaks, and he gives it away. We see it here, and then he finds some fish, and he does the the same, and he he gives it away to the people. He takes, he blesses, and he gives. How did the 4,000 respond? Do you notice how they responded? Were they frustrated that it was fish and bread yet again? Were they left hungry that they were looking for a little bit more from Jesus? No, he tells us in verse 8. Look there with me. How did they respond? They all ate and were satisfied. (laughs) They ate and were satisfied. The message and the meal were satisfying to the people. They were satisfied because Jesus alone does good, for he alone is good. They sat, and they ate, and they drank from the fountain of all goodness, and they found satisfaction in him. Brothers and sisters, Mark is trying to tell us with the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000 is Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. Jesus is the one you have been looking for. He is the faithful servant. He's the promised Davidic king. He is the the Messiah who's come to free you from your sins. He is the one the Father is well pleased with, and he is the one your heart is longing for. It's like this. There's this movie apparently called Frozen, and there's two Frozens. Uh, And I might have seen it because I have daughters. Um, And in the, the second one, there's this big pivotal moment in the Frozen 2 where I think her name's Elsa. She goes in and she goes into this cave and she's finding out things about herself and apparently either her mom's singing to herself or she's singing to herself. You are the one you've been waiting for. It's like, it's within you. You didn't see it. I want you to know that's the gospel of the culture. That's not the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom is you're not the one you've been waiting for. You're actually the problem. What you've been waiting for is not found in the temple. What you've been waiting for is not found within. What you've been waiting for is not found in Washington, D.C. What you've been waiting for is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. He is the one that you have been waiting for. He's the one you were all made for. That's why Paul in Colossians 1 would say you've been made by him and for him. Jesus is it. You need not look anywhere else. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I'd be curious, how, how do you handle satisfaction in life? Have you found contentment in anything in the world? Is there anything that brings lasting satisfaction, joy, and peace? You may have already tried to search the world, but you can keep searching. You're not going to find it there. It can only be found in Jesus. There's no other place that it can be found other than in him. You can acquire all the worldly goods. You can pursue all the pleasures of your heart, and you will still end up empty. For Jesus alone can satisfy He's it. He's the one who can satisfy your broken and longing heart. See, your heart's broken because of your sin, but Jesus came to deal with your sin, to make you right with him. 
How can Jesus make you right? How can he make you right with God? How can he fix your sin problem? Through his life, death, and resurrection. You see, in Jesus' life, he satisfied all the righteous requirement of the law. And in his death, he satisfied the wrath of God. And in his resurrection, he secured salvation for all who would repent and believe. So if you want satisfaction, the good news is today, it's only in Jesus. And if you'll turn from sin and trust in him, you'll find it forever. We'd love to talk with you about what it means to be a Christian, how to follow Jesus, how to find this satisfaction, because it's there. Jesus is willing and able to give it to you if you'll trust and believe in him. Jesus is altogether satisfying. That's what Mark is telling us today. That's what Jesus is saying today, that he is good and he does good. He has no rival. He has no equal. There is none standing beside him. It's him and him alone. Jesus alone satisfies. Not only that, Mark is telling us here in the gospel, and Jesus is telling us about himself, that Jesus alone is sufficient. Not only does he satisfy, so again, there's that challenge. Can you find something that's satisfying and enough? Well, Jesus is both. Jesus alone is sufficient. We're going to see this in verses 11 through 21. Verses 11 through 21. In this section, we're going to break it down in in kind of two parts. We're going to see the confrontation with the Pharisees in verses 11 through 13. And then we're going to see Jesus' correction of the disciples in verses 14 through 21. The confrontation with the Pharisees, verses 11 through 13, and the correction of the disciples in verses 14 through 21. Look there with me now in verses 11 through 13. It says this, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. The Pharisees come to Jesus again, not because they've had a change of heart, but because they're still hard-hearted against Jesus. And apparently the last beating they got from Jesus wasn't enough. They needed one more. They are a persistent and pesky bunch of people. Why did they come back to Jesus? He says this, they came back so that they could argue with Jesus. They were seeking to, to test Jesus. They're basically saying, Jesus, your party tricks are no longer enough for us. We need something extra. We need a sign. When they're asking for a sign, what they're saying is they need some visible evidence from heaven to know for certainty that he's God or that he is who he claims he is to be, that he's from God and is God. They wanted a sign. They needed something extra. Jesus alone was not enough for them. They found him insufficient. They needed something else. And to be clear, I don't think they came hopefully. I think they came deceitfully. I think they came to try to stump Jesus, to yet again say, he's he's not who he says he is, so you don't need to trust him. You don't need to listen to him. They were hoping to ruin him completely. In Mark Mark 8, verse 12, Mark tells us Jesus' response. He says he sighed deeply in his spirit. Now, it doesn't really paint the picture. What it really means, he was exasperated. He was worn out. He was pushed to his limit. He was deeply grieved by their unbelief. Oh, to be a people that is grieved by unbelief like Jesus, grieved by doubts like Jesus is. At this point, I think Jesus is looking at them saying, what else do you need to see? 
What else do you need to see? I've, I've shown you all the things. I've, I've said all the things you need to see, and yet you still won't believe. If you won't believe my word, you'll never believe my work. Jesus says, I'm not going to play your game. I'm giving you no sign. No, no sign will be given to you in this generation. He says, if you can't see that I'm the sign from heaven, you'll never see it. It doesn't matter what I do. Brothers and sisters, if you look at Jesus and you're dissatisfied, the issue is not with Jesus. It's with your own eyes. They need to be recalibrated or they need to be born again. That's the problem. They kept looking at Jesus and they kept leaving unsatisfied because he was not meeting their expectations. They did not find in him to be the one that was enough for what their heart had desires. When someone is disproving of Jesus, Jesus could give them what they want and it still would not be enough. That's how that works. Unbelief, to be clear, is never neutral. Unbelief never seeks to learn but only to express its opinion. Unbelief never seeks to believe the best or hope the best. It's never willing to have an honest conversation. It's always seeking evidence to prove that it was right all along, right all along. And if you're here today and you're overcome by doubts about Jesus, about the Bible, about God and light of the world, I want you to encourage you with this. Your doubts are never seeking to do you any good. Any voice that's trying to get you to doubt God is like the serpent in the garden. It's seeking to ruin your life. So flee from it. Any voice that's encouraging you to be given to sin is never from God. Any voice that's tempting, to, tempting you to put God on trial, to say he's guilty till proven innocent, is not trying to help you but harm you trying to lead you astray. If you're here wrestling with doubts, I want to ask you the question, is Jesus enough for you? Is his word and is his work, is it enough? Will you believe him or will you continue to test him like the Pharisees? Will you need just a little bit extra and then you'll believe? For the Pharisees, Jesus wasn't enough. They needed something more. And Jesus tells them he's done. Mark tells us that Jesus was done. He gets in the boat and he goes to the other side. And honestly, for many of us with our doubts, it's exactly what we should do. We should say, I'm leaving you here. I'm going over there. I don't want to deal with you any longer. You're not trying to help me. You're only trying to harm me. Jesus here, he, he responds to these, this unbelief and he moves from it since they had no desire to truly know who Jesus is and to believe his word. And then we transition. There's a, there's a lot happening, and you might read it, it's all disconnected, but it's all one story communicating the same message. We see it here with Jesus. He corrects the disciples. Very similar situation to the Pharisees. And see the kind of how this Pharisee's thinking and teaching had crept into the, uh, Jesus' disciples. We see it in verses 14 through 21. You can look there with me now as I, I read, read again. It says this, Now they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I... When I broke the five loaves of the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, 12. 
and the seven for the 4,000. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Mark starts here by saying the disciples, they forgot to bring bread. They had only one loaf in the boat with them. And Jesus cautions them. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Leaven is used to make bread rise. And here in Jesus' day is often a reference for corruption. Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Essentially, he's saying, beware of the unbelief of Herod and the Pharisees. I think he puts Herod and the Pharisees together because they're two of the most obvious examples of opposition to Jesus' ministry. The two most obvious examples to the disciples probably of unbelief against Jesus. And he says, do not be corrupted by their unbelief. It will lead you astray. Now, how did the disciples respond to Jesus' warning? Were they like, Jesus, thank you. We know we're a hard-hearted people. We know we're led astray, and we're just so thankful you're here to help us out. What does it say in verse 16? This is immediately after Jesus warns them. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. I mean, what a scene. They had just seen Jesus over the past few months, maybe, feed over 10,000 people. He's in the boat with them, and all they can talk about is the fact that they don't have enough bread in the boat. I mean, this, would, this is like, imagine having dinner with Warren Buffett or Bill Gates, and you're stressed the whole time that you forgot your wallet. It's like, I think you're going to be just fine. Just look up and realize who you're with. It's the same with the disciples. It's like, why don't you just look up and see who you're with? Why are you trusting what you can see within? Why are you trusting your own understanding? It proves foolishness every time. And then Jesus, like a loving Savior, he lays into them with questions in verses 17 and 18. Look what he says here. He just berates them here with five questions. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? Jesus warns these brothers about the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod, and they drive like 100 miles an hour right past the sign. And he brings these questions to their attention because he cares for them. It's hard to believe, isn't it, that people can be so oblivious that they can see all these things about Jesus, they could have heard what Jesus taught and and saw what Jesus did, and yet they still have doubts. Hard to believe that people can be that way. But if we're being honest, it's not hard to believe at all. Because if you look within, maybe not for you, but for me, I have some of those same tendencies just like these disciples. I have seen God time and time again provide and give me all that I need, and there's days and weeks and months that I live like life is all on me. Like, I'm the one holding this thing together. God has done these mighty works, and yet I allow anxiety and and fears, concerns about the future to overcome my thinking, where I forget God altogether, where I'm staring at the loaf and not the one who gave me the loaf. That's a tendency for all of us Christians. I think that's why Mark lets us see the humanity of the disciples, because it wasn't just their problem. It's our problem, too. We struggle with the same things that they did. If you look back over the past few months and days, has the leaven of the Pharisees, has it crept into your life in any way? Are there ways in which you're like the disciples? 
where you're saying, Jesus, I'll trust you if. I'll trust you if you'll do X for me. You see, this is what the leaven of the Pharisees does. It gives you this equation. Jesus plus something else equals enough. And that math equation never works out because Jesus alone is enough. Brothers and sisters, let's not be a people who continue to put Jesus to the test. To say, Jesus, I'll trust you if you'll do just a little bit more. I'll trust you if you'll do just a little bit more. I need that one more sign, that one more miracle, and then I will begin to trust you that you are who you say you are. The issues with the disciples here is they saw Jesus feed the 10,000. Maybe they thought he can feed the 10,000. I'm just not sure he can feed the 12. The unbelief, the math of unbelief, it just never works out. If he can feed the 10,000, he can certainly feed the 12. They'll be just fine. And if you want help and encouragement not to be like the disciples, then do what Jesus does with the disciples here. Look back at all that he's done to find encouragement for all he's able to do in your life. What does he do? He points them back to their, his previous miracles. We see it in verse 19. He says, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full for broken pieces? And they saved the 12. They have no hard time remembering this. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not, do you not yet understand? He directs their attention to the feeding of the 5,000 and the 12 baskets and the feeding of the 4,000 to the seven to say, you've missed the point. It was never about the bread. It's about me that I am enough for you. Will you not believe? He's declaring to the disciples and to all of us today that he is sufficient for these things. Listen, I don't know what you're going through in your life. I don't know the struggles and temptations you face, but I know that Jesus is enough to get you through. The question is not, is he enough? The question is, will you believe he's enough? That was the issue here with the disciples. And if you're tempted to doubt if Jesus is enough, just stare at the cross. Because God said Jesus' work was enough for him. So it should be enough for us. It should be the encouragement that we need that Jesus is the one who can not only save us from our sins, but get us through this life to heaven with him. What else do you need in your life to trust that Jesus is enough? What else do you need to believe that he can get you through all circumstances? I want to encourage you today, if you find out tomorrow that you lose your job, you're going to be just fine. Because if you have Jesus, you have all that you need. If you find out tomorrow that you've got a terminal diagnosis, it may take your dreams, but it can't take your life because you have Jesus and he is enough for you. And if it turns out in the weeks and months and years that, American, or that Christians are no longer a welcome in America, we're all going to be just fine. Why? Because we have Jesus and he is enough for us. He is sufficient to get us through the hardest seasons and the most challenging seasons because he's enough. So will we believe that he is enough? What's amazing about this is this is like the sixth or seventh time that Jesus does great work, and yet the disciples have a hard time believing him. He's done these mighty miracles, and yet they still don't understand. And you know what's amazing to me is Jesus doesn't leave them. If, if I'm leading these 12, I might say, hey, it's, we've had a good run. 
Uh, I'm going to be putting out applications for a new 12. That's not what Jesus does. Now, Jesus, he got in the boat. He could have been like, hey, I walked on water to the boat. Now I'm about to walk out of the boat on the water to get away from you. I'm about to go find another batch. You guys can have your bread. I'm going to go find some people who are going to appreciate me. Now, how does Jesus respond? He doesn't abandon them. These doubting and struggling disciples who yet again don't see, who yet again don't believe, Jesus does not leave them. He stays right in the boat with them. And he asks them these questions not to embarrass them, not to shame them. He asks them these questions because he loves them. And he wants to help them to loosen their grip on this world, which can never be enough to open their heart to the one who is enough. Jesus is that physician who puts you through those scans because he wants you to see the cancer within. And he wants to strike unbelief in your heart as soon as possible so that you can have the best thing, which is himself. He wants you and me to lift our eyes from the bread to the one who gives the bread, who can meet all our needs more than we ever ask or imagine. Brothers and sisters, if you find yourself in a similar situation where you're struggling and stumbling along the way and yet you continue to doubt and you wish you didn't doubt, there's good news. Jesus never doubts you. Jesus has not for a moment regretted your place on the team. He's never regretted the fact that he called you to himself. No, he's with you and he will never forsake you. He's going to stay right in the boat with you to make sure you get home to him. Jesus is with you, and because he is with you, he's going to correct you because he loves you. He is going to expose the doubts within so that you no longer get fixated on what you can see and what you cannot see. So you no longer get fixated on the things of this world. So you no longer get fixated on anything else, but you fix your eyes on the one who can do anything about your life. That's what Jesus is doing We will struggle, we will stumble along the way, but Jesus will not stumble. He's going to make it to the end with us. He's going to bring us home to himself, and he prunes us because he loves us, and he prunes us because he's giving us the best himself. For he alone can satisfy, and he alone is sufficient. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to praise you as the God who gives us not only what we need, but who we need. Father, we we praise you that you've made it so obvious in your word that Jesus is the one we've been waiting for, that Jesus alone can satisfy, that Jesus Jesus alone is enough for us. So Father, would you help our unbelief? Would you help us all become so convinced of who Jesus is and what he's done that we daily put doubts and unbelief to death in our own hearts. That we are a people, regardless of circumstances or situations, are fully convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. So Father, we pray for those here who are doubting today, that they would find rest and comfort in Jesus. That they would see that he's more than enough. That they may cling to him and run to him in their time of need. Father, calls us to be a people who rejoice with you at all times for what you've done in the Lord Jesus towards us. We pray this in his name. Amen.